Welcome to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the resilience advantage, a 12-episode series created by U.S. Resiliency Council with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. The program addresses what resilience means to our communities, businesses, and governments here and around the world. I am your host, Audrey Liu, a student at Cal Poly Slow and an aspiring architectural engineer. Working with the host of the series, Evan Reese, the executive director of the USRC, I've been deep diving into the rich archive of interviews with special guests from various fields such as business leaders, community leaders, architects, engineers, and experts in sustainability, sharing their insights on the importance of resilient design. Come along with me on my journey in learning more about resilient design and why it is so important in all of our lives. Episode 14, A Safe Haven. Everyone has a safe space, whether it's a specific place or even a person. My safe haven would have to be my childhood home. It just holds lots of good memories. Making mud pies with my sister in the backyard, family celebrations, baking with my mom in the kitchen, building benches with my dad in the backyard. It's just always a place that I can call home. The feeling when I come home after a trip is just so comforting and warm. What's your safe haven, Evan? Well, I feel the same as you, Audrey. You know, I travel a lot, and sometimes it's hard to recreate that feeling of a safe haven, especially in an unfamiliar city. I was just in Tampa, Florida last week, actually, as Hurricane Nicole was passing through. I wondered if my hotel had been built to withstand hurricane-force winds. You know, that actually reminds me of one of the people I interviewed for the Resilience Advantage, Jonathan Cohen. He runs a hundred-year-old hotel in Portland, Oregon, and wanted to make sure it would be a safe place for guests during and after an earthquake. Here is Jonathan Cohen. My name is Jonathan Cohen. I'm one of the owners and operators of the Society Hotel. Uh, hotels, I should say. We have two locations now, one in Portland, Oregon, and one in a small town called Bingham, Washington. Tell me about the history of the Society Hotel. How did it all come about? Yeah, it's a really wonderful, if you're a student of history, if you love history, uh, like I do, uh, our building in Portland, Oregon is, is a really interesting one. Um, it was built in 1880, and you got to think of uh, what Portland, Oregon was like in 1880. Uh, its population was about 40,000 people, and 95% of those were men, and most of them were young men under the age of 20. So truly a Wild West uh, sort of situation. And our building was built actually out of a, by a group out of New York called the Siemens Friendship Society. And that's partially where we, uh, where we borrowed the name Society Hotel from. And they really built the hotel, uh, to be kind of a safe place for sailors, kind of like a, a YMCA, uh, of sorts. Uh, because as you can imagine, as a 20 year old sailor at the end of the earth, um, you may not make the best decisions while you're in port. What made the Society Hotel more desirable compared to other kinds of housing for the sailors? Was the hotel more affordable? Uh, it operated as a, as a sailor's hotel, as an affordable, safe uh, lodging for those gentlemen. For about 10 years, 
um, before they were really struggling to make ends meet. And they decided to rent out the building. And it was a hospital for a year, actually. And we actually found a, a ton of uh, medical artifacts in the building. Um, and then they continued trying to operate the building. They actually lifted the building up and made it uh, about 15 feet taller, adding a ground floor uh, with cast iron facade details and a building adjacent to it that was a theater and a chapel uh, and continued to operate those two buildings until uh, 1901 when they sold it to um, Japanese uh, family, Japanese Americans. Uh, the area had become New Japantown as uh, Japanese-owned buildings and businesses were moved north of Burnside Street to our current neighborhood of uh, Old Town, Chinatown. And the Japanese-American family operate the uh, the business uh, very successfully um, for 40 years or so until Japanese internment happened during World War II and the building was taken from them. Were the Japanese-American families the last to own it? The government sold it to uh, actually Chinese Americans. Uh, and this was a big coup because uh, until that point, Chinese Americans had been massively disenfranchised by the Chinese Exclusion Acts, which were passed all the way back in the early 1880s, right after our building was built. And so Chinese Americans, which helped build the railroads, helped uh, with gold mining, helped build the, the American West, could not own um, property, um, could not immigrate, and eventually, uh, since China was an ally to the U.S., uh, advocacy groups like the one housed in our building, actually, the Chinese American Citizens Alliance, they successfully advocated, lobbied to Congress to repeal the Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, which then allowed Chinese Americans to buy property. And in fact, a, a small Chinese fraternal organization purchased our building uh, in 1944, and they continued to operate it for a brief time as a boarding house um, and as a social hall for their for the CACA, the Chinese American Citizens Alliance. Um, but the last event was really held in 1952, which was their national gala event. And uh, it was held in a ballroom type setting on some of our upper floors. Uh, and then after that, the building sat dormant on the upper floors until we purchased it in 2013. So for uh, just about 70 years, uh, the building sat completely dormant upstairs. Uh, and we purchased it in um, 2013. Uh, my wife has Chinese heritage, her grandfather's Chinese, and uh, they, they like the idea of it uh, passing on to Chinese hands um, since there was a pretty big ordeal to be able to own a building in the first place. And that's when we began our, our massive restoration. But we are, in fact, only the fourth owner of this building in uh, just about 140 years. So much time has passed. How has the community around the hotel changed? Yeah, our neighborhood is called Old Town slash Chinatown. As I mentioned, it has uh, Chinese heritage or history. It has Japanese history, too. And in fact, many, many different people have come through that area. It's really kind of Portland's uh, Ellis Island of sorts. Uh, it's only about three blocks from the waterfront uh, and where the waterfront always has been. So it's really the first place that people disembarked from ships from all over the world, um, from Asia, from uh, uh, going around uh, the Americas. And um, it's where people have settled. Um, it's had many, many lives and many different people have lived there. And that's the same for many of the buildings in the surrounding area. 
People from many walks of life have had the opportunity to call this community their home. How about the building? Has the structure of the building changed as much as the community? The building has cast iron facade details, which were not actually original. They, are, they were built uh, about uh, 12 years after the building was built when they lifted it up. Um, but many other buildings in the area built at that time in the 1880s, 1890s, had the cast iron facade details. And uh, besides lower Manhattan, Portland in this neighborhood has the highest concentration of cast iron facade buildings in America. Uh, so it's a very interesting area from an architectural perspective, as well as the culture and the history. And um, it's been a safe haven for people um, just getting their start and for people that have been marginalized communities. It's a big haven for um, Portland's gay population in the 70s and 80s. And continuing today, we try and honor and respect all of the all of the people that have come through and continue to come through Old Town Chinatown. There is so much history connected to this building. What inspired you to take on this project and keep this safe haven alive? I think to take on a project like this, you have to be passionate about it. And, and I'm very passionate about history. I'm passionate about culture. I'm passionate about tradition. And uh, I also love old buildings. And I love um, the stories. And I love being able to reimagine them for a new future, uh, new ways to use them, and new people to experience them with all the modern amenities that we expect in newer buildings. So I love that juxtaposition of new and old. And um, this was an opportunity for, for me and my partners at the time to, um, to, to get involved with that. Um, we were really passionate about bringing a um, boutique, hotel, hostel kind of um, business model to Portland. And we felt that the perfect place was this neighborhood, which is right in the middle of downtown Portland and served by all of our transit lines. And it's just a really opportune place to make this kind of vision for our business come true. And it was the perfect building to, uh, to house that vision. How did you navigate the codes when renovating the building? Was there a lot that needed to be upgraded to meet today's standard codes? The building needed a little bit of everything. Um, strangely, the only upgrade this building ever received was electricity. <laughs> In about 1910, the, the building got electrical service and they strung up wires uh, on the walls and the corridors. And, and other than that, the building was completely original when we found it, which is, which is really amazing. Um, and so really, um, we had, we had good bones, so to speak of, in the sense that all the materials were really intact. Um, the facade, the exterior was really good condition. Uh, and we were able to even preserve all the old windows. Um, but it needed everything else. It needed a completely new structural system, completely new mechanical, electrical plumbing system, fire suppression and, uh, a fire life safety system. So, uh, a really a gut rehab while basically maintaining the entire interior structure and almost all of the materials. We, we really saved about 95% of all materials in the building and either removed them and replaced them or left them in place. You only let go of 5% of the original materials? That's mind-blowing considering that the building has lived such a long life. How did your background in structural engineering help with this renovation? Yeah, I, I had run a, um, a contracting business in the energy sector. I worked in solar and HVAC, but we also did energy retrofits for people's homes and businesses. And I had run that for the previous 15 years. So I was very experienced with working with older buildings in Portland with a permitting process as well. And we, of course, knew what we were getting into. Now, we also knew that with an older building, there was always something unexpected. And of course, we had the amount 
amount of unexpected things that we expected, if that makes sense. So um, we even had uh, some surprises, but we had no more surprises than we expected. No more surprises than we expected. That's funny. Well, I guess that's about as prepared as one can be. Correct. Yes. There were multiple triggers in working through the permitting process um, with the city of Portland that sort of um, corralled us into a required um, seismic upgrade. Essentially, to bring it to modern structural code would also require meeting seismic uh, requirements. So um, there was really no way of avoiding it, even if we had wanted to. But of course, we didn't want to avoid it. We wanted to make the building resilient and seismically sound. But tell me, when it came down to the actual work, did you have to have a seismic upgrade or retrofit the building? Sure. So design can be a very iterative process. And one of the things I try and do as a developer is really identify the key roadblocks um, right in the beginning so we don't have to waste a lot of time iterating. Um, and so uh, I'm trained as an engineer, and so that's maybe just kind of baked into my my thinking. So one of the first things we did was explore with the city through a program called Early Design Assistance to determine what standards they would hold us to. And as I mentioned earlier, we immediately found out that we would really need to do a full seismic retrofit as part of our structural package. And so that really guided a lot of the process and actually made the process a lot simpler because we basically needed to do everything. So it didn't, it didn't really um, require too much interaction between us and the design team. Looking at the before and after pictures of the hotel, I can tell the design team was up for a challenge. Did the architects working with the engineers find a happy medium? How did this work out? This is a building that is 65 feet tall, rather narrow, uh, relatively speaking, and just completely made of brick. Um, so it's about a worst case for having any kind of seismic resistance. What challenges did you run into? We would be forced to use uh, cast-in-place concrete walls uh, for our shear resistance all the way up through the building. And so that really determined a lot of the structural program right there, at least the elements that could be one way or another. And so we knew that pretty much right off the bat and let the structural engineer get to it. And they designed all of the interesting and intricate uh, connections between our rubble foundation. The, the foundation is really just a collection of flagstones set in some concrete and, um, and tying all of that together with modern steel uh, uh, fittings and hardware and all the other connection types that, that were designed. So our structural team did a wonderful job detailing all of that out. And our architect also did a fabulous job integrating all of that into the plan set and preparing our construction team, which was ourselves. In this case, we were our own general contractors um, being prepared for executing um, this kind of complex in-situ um, retrofit. Retrofitting an existing building like this seems much more challenging than new construction. There are so many more factors that need to be considered to get the job done. Am I right in thinking this? Absolutely. It's so much more difficult, having built new construction before as well, it's much more difficult to uh, retrofit a building than it is for new construction. Um, with new construction, you're starting with a clean sheet of paper and you're doing exactly what's in front of you. As you alluded to early, earlier with uh, retrofit, especially one as old as this, 
you really don't know what you're dealing with until you start tearing it apart. Uh, and that's when you really are challenged to try and figure out how to adapt your design to work with it. And our structural engineering team was very good at that. When we ran into challenges, which we did, um, they were able to adapt and we were able to adapt. I'm glad that everything worked out at the end. The work done in the building looks seamless. I can't imagine taking on a challenge like that. Considering the scope and scale of the seismic retrofit that needed to be done, it must have been pretty expensive. Did you receive any financial incentives or government assistance to help foot the bill for this? The short answer is no. <laughs> and um, that's not for lack of trying. There there are some incentives out there. One of the incentives is a um, really attractive loan that our urban renewal organization, which is called Prosper Portland, offers. And we did take advantage of that. Um, and there are some mild grants, um, but the grants were mostly around energy efficiency, which I took full advantage of. Um, but there was really no priority in permitting, um, no special perks, no assistance, no leniency whatsoever. What kind of incentives would have been beneficial in your point of view? Yeah, unfortunately, I think the answer uh, in the current environment is just cash. Um, it could be, it could be preferable loan terms or a really favorable loan to assist with that. Um, but honestly, you know, it just adds a significant amount of cost to comparing to an empty lot um, compared to retrofitting a building. The planners at the Bureau of Development Services are just sort of, uh, and this is typical of many jurisdictions, they see developers in an adversarial light. That's really the way that planning divisions see it. And it's very unfortunate. And we need some real policymakers above the level of administrative folks at the planning agencies to support this. Now, you could argue that our local planning agency supported us through a low-cost loan, and, and I would say that that's a form of incentive and what I'm looking for, but I would suggest that they offer that loan and then forgive a portion of it once the project is is completed. That's really what's needed. Um, in this case, we had historic tax credits to rely on, and most buildings cannot take advantage of historic tax credits because... To get the full historic tax credit, you really have to be able to preserve the use of the building as it was originally intended. That makes sense. You clearly made an effort to preserve the character and construction of the building. You said you kept 95% of the original materials and fixtures. That couldn't have been an easy thing to do, but you didn't preserve the use. Could developers of other historic buildings take advantage of this tax credit? that's just not always possible. The building I'm sitting in right now, we could not preserve the use exactly as it was intended. We're not making a school. We're making a hotel out of a school. And that's a, a no-go for um, the state historic preservation offices. And believe me, we checked over and over again to see if there was any way we could make it work. But they're not interested in that. And they just don't understand what it's like to try and raise money or borrow money to make these things work. Um, a lot of these properties... If you just say, we'll just add more cost to the property, um, you're saddling the property with debt for forever. And um, it just, it, you can't attract investment. You can't get a loan. Um, projects just can't work if, uh, if they cost too much. And uh, supporting the cost of retrofitting older buildings is something that I think our city policymakers need to take a closer look at because the planning folks are not. That is really unfortunate. With so many hoops to jump through, I would think more potential benefits could be earned. Or at least they would make the process a little easier. 
Owners should be encouraged to preserve their buildings. The character of older buildings, like the society, really capture the history of a city. They make it a more unique destination and attract more tourism. So, Jonathan, I saw that the USRC awarded the Society Hotel a silver rating. This sounds like it was well deserved after all the preserving and retrofitting your team did on the building. Well, it's really a wonderful accolade, and we're we're very much appreciative of the recognition of our project. It's a passion project for for me and um, uh, my wife, and we, we care very much about um, preserving this building and telling its story and resiliency and thinking long term about the survival of this building is the way that we're going to be able to keep doing that. So to be recognized for that um, is is very nice um, because it is it's a huge effort most. Most uh, buildings would not go to the effort, and we've seen several historic buildings torn down for specifically that reason. It's much easier to build new, and um, so unless you're passionate about it, um, it's, it may not happen. And so it's, it's a great recognition for us, and we very much appreciate that. Yes, it is all about thinking long-term. I could imagine that the Society Hotel serves as an inspiration to the community. It's a real catalyst project for the neighborhood, I believe, because as I mentioned earlier, there are many, many other uh, buildings of its vintage in the neighborhood which have not been upgraded yet, and they would like to. And I think our project provides real guidance for a way that that can be done. Um, and I'm really proud to to have done that. Prior to us purchasing our building and doing the renovation, it had been more than 10 years, I think almost 20 years, before any building had been sold to a private entity, meaning a non-institutional like a school or um, a government agency. And after we completed our project, um, dozens of buildings uh, transacted, sold, and some were renovated. And one right around the corner um, did a similar renovation. Uh, and I think that building is uh, right around 1900, maybe a little bit earlier. And so um, definitely inspired others to uh, to do the same. And, and we're very proud of that. And we'd love to see uh, as many of the um, buildings in Old Town be preserved as possible. Evan, Jonathan shared so much about the history behind the Society Hotel and the process it took to make it the building it is today. The building has definitely come a long way but it is still a safe haven for the people that stay there. Having a safe haven is so important, a place to call home. This is one of my reasons for going into this field, to have the opportunity to create spaces where people can relax and feel safe. One of my favorite engineering professors once said, structural engineering is a noble profession. I completely agree. There are few careers where every day you can go to work and know you're making people feel safe. Cool. So who's going to be our next interview? Amanda Syok Hertzfeld. She's been working for FEMA as the Earthquake, Tsunami, and Volcano Program Manager for the Pacific Northwest. Volcanoes? Wow. Looking forward to it. For more resources and information about Jonathan Cohen and the Society Hotel or for links to the Resilience Advantage series, check out our website. Thanks for joining me and listening to Making Resilience Cool, a podcast based on the 12-episode Resilience Advantage series created by the USRC with the generous support of Optimum Seismic. 
Join me next time as I delve more deeply into the incredible archive of interviews from that series with engineers, architects, innovators, business leaders, and community leaders talking about everything you could possibly want to learn about what resilience really means. Next episode, I'll be deep diving into the Resilience Advantage interview with Amanda Syok Hertzfeld, who works for FEMA specializing in earthquake, tsunami, and volcano programs.